This week's episode of The Dive is brought to you by Pelican Brewing. For nearly 30 years, Pelican Brewing has crafted the most balanced-tasting brews. Now, they're bringing the same satisfying taste to hop-infused sparkling water, with zero alcohol and zero calories. Sparkle Hops is a hop and fruit-infused new way to elevate your everyday. Expertly brewed from hops in two flavors, Citra Hop-infused sparkling water with lemon, and Strata Hop-infused sparkling water with acai. Start with a sip and breeze away with the balance of quality hops, ripe fruit, and punchy fizz. Refreshment, it's a pelican thing. Welcome to the Dive Podcast, presented by Willamette Week where every Saturday we discuss the biggest news stories of the week with Portland's noisiest newsmakers, savviest culturistas, and some of the best journalists in the game. I'm your host, Brianna Wheeler, and I want to hear from you. So send your questions and comments to me, bwheeler at wweek.com. All right, y'all, enjoy the show. This week's issue of Willamette Week is my favorite type of issue of Willamette Week. The cover package is a big, weird ideas issue that loves Portland as much as I do through the lenses of people who've committed to making this place better. Literally, the cover package is how to save Portland. And it's a collection of big ideas. And it has the energy of a roundtable cocktail party discussion between you and your most galaxy-brained homies. One of the big ideas was, for reals, let cops smoke weed. Another one was to uh, import a Waffle House. One was to focus on waterfront rejuvenation, uh, sort of like what they did in the Couve. And another one was to redevelop our own downtown as a residential haven. Some of these ideas are fun. Most of them are practical. And all of them would make Portland a city worth its lefty progressive notoriety. Well, except the Waffle House idea. I don't want to fight anybody. And I, I heard that you have to... Or do you have to learn how to fight if you want to eat there? It's Saturday, January 7th, and this is episode 105 of The Dive. This week, I'm chatting with Willamette Week's managing editor, Aaron Mesh, about the cover package, How to Save Portland. And we'll discuss a few of the ideas in this collection, uh, both commonsensical and experimental. And we'll kind of unpack why each have the potential to reshape the city um, in just one sec. But first, here's what I learned from this week's edition of Willamette Week. Mayor Wheeler told us he would shift around the oversight of the city's bureaus between the city commissioners. And then he did. Key moves include Commissioner Maps overtaking transportation, Commissioner Gonzalez overseeing fire and rescue, and Commissioner Rubio relieving Commissioner Ryan of his position overseeing housing. Commissioner Ryan now oversees Parks and Rec. Sophie Peel did an entrance interview with incoming Multnomah County Chair Jessica Vega-Peterson. The Cliff Notes version, Peterson has not committed any dough to Mayor Wheeler's controversial homeless campsites plan, and they are not, despite their testimony during the election, uh, in wholehearted, full-throated support of criminalizing homelessness. In case, like me, you were hoping that was just some empty campaign chatter. It kind of looks like it was. Uh, Another classic Portland dive bar, Sloan's. Uh, the trucker-themed spot on the corner of North Vancouver and Russell, the, uh, the one with the tractor-trailer cab jutting from its west face, it has shuttered, Jay Horton reports. 
I spent many magical afternoons at Sloan's, and like most Portland day drinking enthusiasts, the spot and its magical jukebox will always hold a place in my heart. Now let's catch up with my guest, Aaron Mesh, and discuss some big ideas on how to save Portland. Right off the bat, this suggestion that um, that Phil Knight is going to rejuvenate uh, the Rose Quarter. Well, he's already on the cusp of buying the team. Mm-hmm. How probable is it that big changes to that area would happen on Phil's dime? I think the public will is there, and I think that Phil's will is there. Mm-hmm. Phil's will sounds like a like a really corny Grateful Dead cover band. <laughs> Knight has expressed the desire for a legacy project. I think it's fair to say that his desire to buy the Portland Trailblazers at his age, and he's in his 80s, mm-hmm. isn't because he's excited necessarily about uh, being a team owner and having the fun that younger owners like someone like Mark Cuban are excited about, like getting to get their hands into into like player personnel development. I suspect that's not Knight's interest. I think Knight's interest is that he went to Cleveland High School, he was born and raised in Portland, uh, and has not in any significant way left his mark on the city. You have essentially what is now a stadium district, and everywhere in America, stadium districts are pretty terrible. There is an opportunity by capping that freeway, by, uh, by looking at the properties that surround Moda Center, maybe even tearing down Moda Center and building a new arena, building that arena in a way that is integrated into a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. You really have a chance to like create a second downtown in Portland and one that maybe is a little bit more equitable than the one that exists now. Yeah. And what's exciting about that and what I think could be exciting for Phil Knight is after all, he built an empire on the names and faces and feet of black athletes. Yeah. Uh, and although you might argue that Knight exploited uh, developing world labor, I don't think he exploited those athletes. I think they did very well for themselves. And in fact, Michael Jordan and others and Kobe Bryant uh, couldn't be happier with the, with the partnership they have with Phil Knight. But my point in bringing that up is to say that what better way to bring that legacy full circle than to... Uh, than to partner with black Portlanders who want to see their city become more for them. There's a chance to do that here. So, you know, grain of salt. Maybe our idea is just one more step in the in the, the terrible gentrification of this city. <laughs> and readers will write to me in 10 years and tell me that that's my fault also. Oh yeah, that'll be your legacy, Aaron. Huh. Yay, yay. <laughs> in regards to housing. Um, there were two, two ideas presented and that those ideas were uh, rezoning the inner east side and then remaking empty downtown offices into living spaces, which I know that Mayor Wheeler has made noise about, but what are the odds that either of those plans play out? Well, to begin with, I think you have to look at the lack of housing stock as this city's biggest problem. Yeah. I think we did in this, in, in this package, uh, take the two basic assumptions. One is that uh, the lack of affordability, the fact that there is not there are not enough places to live which drive up costs because of demand, uh, and then that 
trickles down all the way to people at the bottom rung who then find themselves living on the street is the fundamental sin of this city and anything that can be done to rectify it should be done to rectify it um so that was assumption one assumption two is the central business district of this city is not coming back not in the same way that it exists now that uh that you are seeing the large commercial tenants of big buildings in downtown essentially accepting that their workers are always going to be remote to some degree or another. Mm. And there's a chicken egg problem there that uh, I find myself in sort of hot debate with our own readership about, which is that a lot of people have written to me in the past few days after this paper has come out and have said, no one wants to go downtown. It's a shithole. It's filled with crime and derelicts. Why would anyone ever want to go downtown? Why would you even attempt to remake it? Jeez. It's the mood of, it's the mood of the population right now. The problem with that idea to me is that it, is that it uh, it misunderstands the fundamental nature of Portland's problem, which is uh, that this city is not crime ridden because uh, its citizens are uniquely <laughs> uh, wicked or lawless. It is not in fact an anarchist jurisdiction <laughs> the reason why this city is having so much trouble with blight and crime and camping in downtown is because no one else is there yeah if you empty out a place if you create a vacuum that vacuum will be filled by something yeah like the, and you can you can make the case perhaps if i'm playing devil's advocate that the 100 nights of protest certainly affected the ability of people to return to work but i don't think you can make that case very very easily or very organically or very well yeah i think what you can make the case is that portland uh properly responded to a global pandemic but that the unintended consequences of that response are that uh work fundamentally changed not just here but across the country and that people will not be returning to the office. It doesn't matter how much grumpy old men like me crab about how people should be at the office every day. It's not going to happen. Hybrid work is here to stay. So that means how are we going to create communal spaces that are not centered around cubicles? So the obvious answer to that when you look at it is that places that are currently used as office space need to be used as living space. Yeah in order for people to 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 be in a neighborhood in our most important neighborhood 24 hours a day yeah the cost of those conversions is really high and so you're going to need to have a lot of tax breaks and uh, other incentives to get developers to do it it's worth doing uh it will not on its own fix downtown's problems and i don't think any of these ideas individually are silver bullets yeah. And it won't on its own fix the problem of uh, a lack of housing stock. The lack of housing stock is a thornier problem. And I think perhaps the most difficult thing we proposed in this entire package, and arguably the most important thing, is making sure that every residential neighborhood in the city, particularly the inner southeast, and I'll name names, Buckman, Laurelhurst, uh, Sunnyside, Alameda, that those neighborhoods where you only have single family housing 
also have triplexes and small apartment buildings and that those neighborhoods, the skyline becomes three to four stories tall. Mm -hmm. Those neighborhoods deeply oppose that. And I feel like I've had kind of a, a, a tone in this conversation that I'm uh, being adversarial toward our readership. And here I want to make that extremely explicit. Our readers won't like the idea of their neighborhoods changing their size and scale. They are wrong and they have to lose. Drag them. What is the, when we're talking about residents in these neighborhoods that are opposing these kind of big changes, are we talking about, can we break it down into, is it older residents that are fighting this? Because I don't imagine that like, Oh, I wouldn't necessarily break it down by, by age, although, but it's, it's by income status. By income status. Okay. Yeah. Like it's, it's not, it's, uh, you can have homeowners don't like the, the, don't like having an apartment building next door. That, that it's, it's, a, that, that's the problem. Like now granted, most homeowners tend to skew older and most renters tend to skew younger, mm. but this isn't a question of, of, uh, Aaron Mesh's war against the boomers. This is uh, this is purely a question of, uh, of of economic status. Yeah, those who have want to keep what they have and don't want to see their what they have change, and those who have not uh, would like to see change. That's always the case. In this case, the ones who have not are correct. Yeah, uh, that neighborhood associations consistently block and fight against zoning changes that would allow more. Uh, more housing into their neighborhoods you know neighborhood associations typically want two things that i've seen over the years uh, and one of those things is appropriate for them to want and the other one uh is a, against the interest of their neighborhood the thing that's appropriate for them to want is public safety and a lack of tents on the sidewalk that's Fair. actually an appropriate thing for them to want. It's appropriate for the residents of Laurelhurst to not want a homeless camp on the edge of Laurelhurst Park. Lots of uh, leftists will say camping is a human right, uh, and that's fine. But if you own a home on the edge of Laurelhurst Park, it is perfectly appropriate for you to not want to see open-air drug dealing and, uh, and human excrement on the sidewalk. That's an appropriate thing. Here's the problem, though. Those neighbor, same neighborhood associations repeatedly fight any change to the scale of their neighborhood on a, on a construction level. Like, keep the neighborhood character, they say. They cannot have both. Hmm. It's not possible to solve the city's housing crisis and to get rid of the tents on the sidewalk if you also say that every single neighborhood outside of its commercial zones has to look like a gingerbread house. Mm. Yeah. Like, uh, I'm so tired of it. I'm just so sick of rich Portland homeowners continuing to, to fight to make sure that their lawns look the same way that they looked 20 years ago and that, that, that the view from outside their window looks the same. Well, you know what kind of view they're going to get? They're going to get tents and knives. Oregon schools, not for lack of teachers' efforts, uh, are kind of in a gutter bucket type of state right now. Um, despite wild amounts of funding. Sure. Um, so the paper suggests that increasing accountability with some basic financial oversight uh, is 
pretty crucial. And as a parent um, who has been consistently let down by Portland Public Schools, I have to wonder how they've been allowed to proceed without massive oversight. There's so much money there. Well, what's sure. going on? Well, it's because that money doesn't actually come with any strings attached. So the problem is structural. Mm. The problem is that the legislature doles out 70% of the money, but local school districts bargain teacher contracts on an individual district level, which means that any questions about, like, should there be test scores that, uh, that match the, that, are ex- that are expected with this money? And frankly, Brianna, I- I'm, not, I'm not in the position that you are of being closely watching the, the, the functionality of Portland Public Schools. I actually think you can tell me what's not working in public schools way better than I can tell you what's not working in public schools. But because the money isn't tied to the results in the sense that like the people who give out the money are not also the people who are answered to when it's time to, to ask the question of how do you do with that money, mm-hmm. that creates a disconnect. There should be expectations and benchmarks tied to any kind of funding. Yeah. Which means that, that big contracts and budgets need to be set on a statewide level with clear expectations across the board that are the same for everybody. I can see how muddy this could be. I mean, just like relying on testing to meet like benchmarks. There's, yeah, that's sure, super sure problematic too. That seems the right metric. Like that's part yeah. of the reason why I'm saying that I think like that parents need to actually have greater say in what those benchmarks ought to be. Yeah. Like people whose kids are in the public school system ought to have greater say in what expectations the state should be setting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think the 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 very understandable desire for local control hasn't necessarily worked out all that well in Oregon schools because the money's not local. Like if the people who mm. hand out the, if the people who hand out the dollars essentially have like those big money guns and they're just shooting them in the air. <laughs> I, pew, 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 pew. And the, yeah, exactly. That's, that's the noise that I'm imagining in my head. And, but those people are also not the ones who, uh, who set the rules about when the money gun gets turned off. Hmm. I, 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 I think what you have here in some ways is like the people who receive the money are also setting the expectations rather than the people who hand out the money setting the expectations, mm. which is a really funny way to run an allowance system. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so my two favorite ideas to come out of the package were um, the six-block Carlos Square around Pioneer Courthouse Square and... I have never been to a Waffle House, but I would very much like to visit a Waffle House sometime before I die. You haven't, you haven't lived until you've been to a Waffle House. Do you have to fight, or can you just eat? You can just eat. <laughs> it is a perfect diner. It's a, it is one of the few places in America where you consistently see a clientele that is representative of uh, the, the rainbow of, of Americans. Big thanks to this week's guest, Aaron Mesh, and thank you for joining me. I hope you'll join me again next week. Until then, bye!